Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt and we both are in the metro Washington area now. That's the first time in months, James. I'm telling you, reunited on, on the bank's home week. I'm on the West Bank and you're on the East Bank. <laughs> Uh, and, and we're both going to speak in our microphone so we everybody can hear us. And we're joined this week by Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist and the foremost expert, I think, on the pandemic, Laurie Garrett, and the foremost expert, I'm not exaggerating, folks, I promise, on the National Football League and the Super Bowl, Greg Cassell, the senior producer at NFL Films. Now, remember, we take your questions each episode. So write into Politics War Room at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by Gainful, uh, IP, Vanish, and Blink Blinkist. I love Blinkist, and I don't know why I draw a blank sometimes when I try to pronounce a name. It's Blinkist. It's me, not them. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes, and we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. And please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, lots to talk about this week, but I think three things we want to focus on before our great guest, and that's the COVID relief package, the Republican Civil War, and next week's impeachment trial. Let me just take a stab at the COVID relief package. You know, if Republicans are serious, about trying to find common ground on a COVID stimulus good. And they make one good point, and that is the stimulus checks should be targeted, and they shouldn't just go to families making as much as 250 grand. But it, the proposal they put forth doesn't begin to meet the needs of tens of millions out of work, hungry, and evicted from housing. There's nothing sacrosanct about Biden's 1.9 trillion. I'm a little bit less interested in the bottom line figure than what the particulars are. You can shave some stuff off. And if you go to a Democratic-only reconciliation, Joe Manchin and a few of uh, the more moderate conservative types will make them shave a few off. But, it, but I think right now it would be better to get a deal, but the Republicans are just posturing. And to say we tried and Biden stiffed us, that's not true. We need to get that money and those resources out as quickly as possible to try to get back to some semi-normal state. Delay well, hurts us. What do you think? The, the best idea that I've seen, first of all, is that $1.9 billion, $600 billion or whatever, whatever the back and forth is. It's all we can do is report the, the figure. And, and the best idea I heard was written in Jonathan Shape by Jason Furman that what you do is you do $1.2 trillion through September of this year. The Furman idea. If, if, yeah. Yeah, the Furman idea. Then at September, if the economy's back, as a lot of people think it will be, then that's the end of it. But in that, you build stabilizers. So if we're still, if, if people are still in a world of hurt, you know, these variants come through, we'll talk to, to, to Laurie Garrett about this later today, you don't have to go through the same rigmarole again. And that way you can you can say, well, it's $1.2 billion, so that's not a that's a pretty good because it's just the way the lunacy of the way we cover things was one point nine, one point two, six hundred right. billion. It seems like it's a kind of a compromise thing, of course, which the commentary it loves the idea of just they got a figure, you got a figure. Let's just agree on the middle figure. Well, this is a way to get to kind of a middle figure, but at the same time, if if things don't work out the way we hope they do, you you. 
automatically rolling over more checks for more people. And I, I agree, and I do think that most left-of-center economists agree with you that you, you want to get these benefits to people who are unemployed much more than people that are already employed and that, that really need it. And to the extent that they can do that fairly and with a, with a highly degree of you know targeting people, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, well, I just glanced the Furman proposal, but I totally agree with you. It makes such sense, probably why it won't happen, but it, it really does. It's a protection. I mean, there are forecasts that this economy is going to take off as soon as we get back to something approaching normal. And if we do that by the end of the um, third quarter, uh, then we won't need more relief. But if we don't, if they, it takes longer to get back there and there's still people struggling, then, you know, there can be these automatic payments uh, that, uh, that take place. So it's, it's a great idea. Uh, I, I, I wish it would happen. Um, well, if, you know, as they say in the Marine Corps, wish in one hand and shit in another, see which one fills up the fastest. But okay, <laughs> I wish to. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about the Republican Civil War. Marjorie Green, Liz Cheney. I mean, you you can't believe it. Uh, I mean, you really can't. It's um, really a case of Republicans are going to embrace Jewish space lasers that set fires in California and go after God fearing Christians, uh, or are they? <laughs> Kind of keep with their very conservative for you and me, much too conservative um, ideology that Liz Cheney represents. But 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 what about AOC and Maxine Waters? Yeah, but that's, that's the answer the to everything. And now it's the Ilian Omar. It, it, it's of course get you mark it up with with any female of color, uh, and that's where they're going full time. Uh, well, you want to say you know we got we got Martin Taylor Green. You're right. You got AOC. Oh, shut up! AOC is a is a you know kind of is a smart kind of media savvy person that that believes that we can achieve universal coverage for health care and want to you know minimum income. But probably you know, I would say these are not of difficult, not particularly popular politically. But that's a perfectly acceptable position for a politician to have. I wouldn't care if my daughter came home and said, "Dad, I wish she has." I, I just love AOC. It's a great, you know, Southern Roman Dad. When your daughter comes home and says, Dad, I love Marjorie Taylor Greene, you got a problem, dude. You got a, you got a real whack job for a daughter. This is not the same thing. And, and I see that Axios, of all places, they do great work. I love Mike Allen. I love Jonathan Swain. Fall into this both-siderism crap that has just become the hallmark of Washington over the last 30 years. AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene are not even on the same planet, all right? One, no, one's, is in my one's opinion, dangerous is, is a little one naive. may be unrealistic, but— right. um, Yeah, there's uh, a difference uh, between but, being aspirational and being a kook. Right. All Worse right? than a kook. Worse than a kook, uh, yeah. James, I, I mean, I, I agree with you totally on this. But here's what gets me, and maybe it's changing now, but so far the Republican fringe is— far more lethal, far more dangerous, far more insidious, and far bigger than what might be termed the Democratic fringe, if that's what you want to call it. Yet the Democrats have paid a price for, for, for theirs, the defund the police. And everything. The Republicans seem not to so far have paid a price for the Marjorie Greens of the world and others who were there before her. Well, so far is the, the key phrase here. And, and, you know, remember when Lester Max was governor of Georgia, he famously said the problem— with Georgia prisons is a quality to inmate. 
the problem with the Republican Party is the quality of the Republican primary voters. All right. These are people, again, there's a huge piece about what percent of Republicans actually embrace QAnon. They, 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 they're too big to fail. And so as long as you have wacky voters, that's going to produce wacky politicians. We keep saying, well, when is some Repub- when is Lindsey Graham going to stand up to this? The truth of the matter is Lindsey Graham is doing what a majority of the Republicans in South Carolina want him to do. That the problem here is 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 of, of course we have sycophant, hypocritical, God knows what not Republican politicians. But by and large, if you got them in a corner, they'd say, "Look, this is what this is what my voters want." We we got we got some low quality people in this country. Well, some really you know, really low quality people. Say, no one wants I'm, to say I'm, some people I'm, in this country are just goddamn is, dumb. Yeah, a lot why of don't them. they pay a price? It should be that well, those I, those people don't represent a majority in most general elections. Maybe they do in North Georgia. I don't know, but not in most yeah. places. You know, and, and again, the Democrats paid a price for their, I think, far more benign, if counterproductive, cause for things like defunding the police. Pre- uh, police and Republicans so far, I don't know if that's the Democrats' fault. I don't know what it is, but they have not paid a price. Well, you know what? In in, in January two thousand seventeen, when Trump took office, they had the presidency, they had the Senate, they had the House. Now they have neither of the three. So you just can't say they didn't pay a price. Certainly the price may not be consummate what we think the offense is. And and every time they turn around today, they have an impeachment trial that they don't want to fool with. Every Republican's got a microphone in in her or his face asking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't buy that they hadn't paid a price. I will buy this. They hadn't paid a price consummate with the damage they did. But when you hold the House to sit in the presidency and four years later you got none of the three, you've paid some price. Well, James, that's true of all incumbents. That was true of Clinton. That was true of Obama. Uh, I mean, they all leave with less, with fewer members of Congress than they came but in I with. I don't know that at and, the end of the first term that they were both reelected. Trump was not yeah, reelected. I know they were, he but paid again, a price. If you look at the Senate and the House in 1993 and in 2001, uh, there were fewer Democrats. The same with 2009 and 17. I know, th- and I agree with you, they haven't played a price anywhere near commensurate with what they should pay. I hope it's starting to change. Maybe it has to do with the Democrats making a better case. Well, uh, you know what? In four years, if, if, if you had the presidency, you had the House, you had the Senate, and four years later, you have neither of the three, there's some price that's been paid. But how much? It, yeah, it yeah, be like, like most incumbents do. But, but let's price. turn to impeachment. Um, the Republican cop-out, it's going to be it's not constitutional. Now, that really is a cop-out. It, it is not the preponderance of constitutional scholars, as our friend Walter Dellinger has pointed out, citing the very conservative um, uh, judge, Michael McConnell, you know, say, you know, it is constitutional. It says that, you know, the Senate shall try all who have been impeached. It doesn't say all who have stayed in office. But it is a cop-out that they're getting away with, I'm afraid. And, um, again, I don't know if they'll pay a price for it, but uh, I, I, I think that's – everyone, when you hear them interviewed, that's what they say. Not that I think he didn't do anything, not that he's not even impeachable, but, you know, he's left office, and so it really isn't constitutional. We don't know if it's constitutional or not. It's not anything until the Supreme Court says it is. So, I mean, but, but I'd say to the let's – if you think he's guilty as it is – 
didn't do that and let the courts decide. But because well, our professor says it's constitutional or not constitutional, and another one says it isn't, isn't, we have no idea if it's constitutional or not. I, I, if I read the articles, I try to be fair. It does seem to me that people like uh, Dean Delager have a, a much better point, but there are people that say otherwise, and the only way that you're going to find out is go ahead and do it and then let the courts decide it if Trump tries to run again. Yeah. There's not many that uh, that say otherwise. There are some. There's um, some. You know, we, it, we doesn't matter. it doesn't matter what state. an opinion of the attorney general or, or the solicitor general or the dean of the BL Law School says. It, it doesn't make a shit. The only thing that matters is when the court says it's constitutional. And we don't well, know the only way right to test now. that is then, is then right, to, is to uh, do it and go through with it and let's right, find out. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, you, we, we talked the other day and you said, I, may, I don't know if you, you, you still believe this, that you're over under on the number of votes to impede and to convict rather would be 58 and a half. If you're sticking with that, I'll, I'll, I'll take the under. Okay. I, I'll, 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 I'll stick with it. I'll go with over. I mean, it come in with 55 and, and I think that the presentation from everything that I've heard and everything I've read you know, I've heard a little, not much inside of stuff, but some, but I've read a lot. And I, I think Jamie Raskin is going to emerge as, as one of the real true heroes of the Democratic Party when this is over. That is, that, that, or, or maybe not just the Democratic Party, but maybe in, in, in the whole United States Congress. But, but I, I think that the, the presentation and the facts and all of the things that they're marshal is going to make a lot of people very uncomfortable. And I need four more than the fifty-five that I go in there with, and I'll go ahead. I'll take. I'll take the over fifty-eight and a half. Okay. I hope you win this bet, um, and I think this is even a more compelling case than a year ago. But I thought Adam Schiff and um, Val Demings, um, uh, uh, you know, made a very right. uh, Jason Crow made a very effective case then, and right. they just didn't pay any attention to it. Came in with their minds made up and just tuned out. They live in a different world now. They got really vulnerable sentences coming up. And by the way, watch the 2026 class of Republicans. Watch the ones that just were reelected. And, and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where they go. Because if, if, you know, Mitch McConnell likes to play the long game, whatever that means, but he, he uses the phrase, the long game is not on Trump's side here. And, and the, the information that is going to come forward at this trial, and it's just going to keep coming forward because history is just going to keep going over this and going over this, and they're going to find more and more and more and more. And I think the Democrats are exactly right. The strategy has to be bring heat, bring heat, bring heat. Attack, attack, attack. Impeach convict, investigate, everything. Expose this for what it is, an era of unprecedented criminality, of of unprecedented attack on everything that people care about in this country. Don't try to parse it. Don't try to be clever. Don't try to be anything. Bring heat. Attack constantly. Never, Never let up. Be be like General Grant. Just keep putting the pressure on. Pressure, pressure, pressure. And that will be, it will work in the end. What, James, I'll tell you what. I hope you win this little wager. But if Lindsey Graham switches, who was just elected, 
I'll buy you two dinners, not yeah. just one, two, at any place you choose, anywhere. I don't know. Man. I, don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I think yeah, little Lindsay's going to remain a coward him. for a long time. I'm sure. I'm not counting on Lindsey Graham to be anything other than Lindsey Graham or anybody else. I okay. just think that they, you know, they, they, there might be four additional votes. No one has come out and announced it. Sometimes you just, you know, I'm a gambler. Sometimes you got to bet on the card. You say, what what is going to happen here? And I, I just think that when it, it as it goes through this, the whole Liz Cheney, Martin Taylor Green, some of these Republicans say, man, we're going to lose an end to this fight. We're just getting hammered here. And, you know, we we got to get out of this hammerlock that we're in and move on. But but we'll see. I'm not, you know, if I've been wrong about it, I'm not, not the end of days. I've but never, I mean, I've never learned to lose a bet. Well, I don't, I don't want to lose it. I want to win it. But I think Kansas City is going to cover. I, I want to win. <laughs> well, but we we will not, get to that uh, in just a few minutes. But, uh, you know, on, on that we might agree. But uh, this has been uh, one hell of a week. And you know what? Next week will be even bigger. Hey, James, whether you're trying to build muscle, lose weight, or just get your nutrition on track, particularly in these times, protein is critical. But it's especially important to get the protein powder that's right for your lifestyle and health goals. That's why it's exciting to discover Gainful. It's personalized to your exact nutritional needs to work for you. Gainful offers customized protein based on your body type, diet, fitness, habits, and goals. Good for everybody, but particularly for geezers like us. Yeah, you know, I started uh, running literally daily on August the 1st, 1981. And so I'll be 40 years this August the 1st. And, of course, I've, I've, over the last 40 years, let's say I've aged a little bit. And I, I'll be honest with our listeners, I haven't tried this yet. But, boy, does it sound like there's something tailor-made for me. And I'm going to do my profile, and, and I'm a big flavor guy, so I want to pick the flavors at work. And, and th this sounds like something terrific. And I, I think a lot of people that listen to us uh, do understand the value of exercise. And, and something like this can be a real, you know, something we really need in our toolbox. So I'm, I'm looking forward to trying this, and I, I think it can have real benefit to a guy like me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, me, me too, James. I, I jogged every day for more than 40 years. My wife made fun of me one time when there was this huge snowstorm in Washington. I was the only person on Wisconsin Avenue. But I now do inside. I do the Peloton and uh, other things. And I'm going to do the same thing because this is designed by a team of sports nutrition experts who work with professional teams and athletes. So their formulas are optimized for performance with simple and effective ingredients. And there's no fillers, gluten, soy, or anything artificial. And you can even take real advantage of free, unlimited one-on-one -on -one access to your own registered dietitian. No other protein comes with this kind of hands-on attention. And it's an incredible bonus. It gives you the tools to make the most of the product, right? Correct. And if you read, I think it was actually, the, well, I think maybe it was the Times, give them credit with this, about how much nutrition goes into like Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes. How, you know, if, if the, these kind of elite athletes are paying this much attention to nutrition, maybe the, de the other definition of an elite athlete is our hunting James Carville, but maybe we ought to pay more attention to it. I, I think this is a product that is really worthy of investigation. Yeah. Uh, Tom Brady's not going strong at 43 because he's on a fast food diet. Uh, but here's here, here's my favorite part. No, uh, my so. favorite part. Gainful protein is never repetitive or boring with Gainful. You're never going to be stuck 
with a big tub of protein with a flavor you're not into. Gainful sends you a pouch of unflavored protein accompanied by a single serving flavor boost. And it seems great that you can switch up the flavors. And I have to tell you, when I started, James, I'm going to the peanut butter right away. You also can choose some rich chocolate cookies and cream, uh, vanilla, chocolate, peanut butter, strawberry cream, and cafe mocha to customize each and every protein shake to your exact taste with personalized formula. Or you can just add the unflavored protein straight. Try your smoothies and recipes. Right. With a gainful subscription, you'll receive monthly shipments straight to your door with the ability to easily pause, change the frequency of deliveries, or update your formula and flavors. Sounds good to me. I don't know if you can get the, the neutral flavor and do like you do with a you know, Diet Coke, squeeze a half yeah. a lemon into it, a lime, whatever you like, an orange. You can you can you can do your own, you know, flavor supplement if you want to. Right now, we have a special offer for our listeners to get $15 off your first month of personalized protein powder when you go to gainful.com slash warroom. That's gainful.com slash warroom. And that's all one word. Trust me, you're going to love having personalized protein powder from Gainful. It's a game changer. So that's gainful.com slash warroom to get $15 off your first month or go to the link on our show notes. Hey, James, we're going to talk to the Tony Fauci of journalism. No one forecasts and understands this deadly virus better than Laurie Garrett, a prize-winning author and journalist who more than a quarter a century ago wrote The Coming Plague. Laurie, we are so honored to have you on this program. Let me start by asking you, there's a feeling of more optimism now than there was several months ago. We have multiple vaccines. Uh, we have people in charge who are letting the scientists play the role they should play. But you're a realist. And for all that good news, you still think we have a long way to go, am I right, before we're back, we're safe and back to semi-normal. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I don't really think we go back to normal. We're going to go forward to some new reality. We'll come out of this viral episode, but we won't come out the same nation, the same international business climate, the same cultural climate as we were in 2019. So um, I generally object to the concept of going back to normal, though I realize it, it fuels a lot of uh, great monetary exchanges on, on the uh, Wall Street exchange. Um, what I, I said back a year ago, Last February, I said we were in for a 36-month battle. And I meant that in the context of uh, 36 months until uh, hospitals were not burdened, 36 months until business operations resumed in some new form, and uh, such cultural things as uh, theater events, movies, uh, basketball games, and so on could go back to having the stands filled, the seats filled. Uh, and I still think that's a reasonable expectation. I realize that now that we have vaccines and we amazingly have five reasonably good vaccines already uh, in use in various places around the world, there's great reason for improved optimism. But as we're discovering here in the richest country in the world, rolling out a vaccine campaign is much more complicated than people had realized or thought. 
And on top of that, uh, we're, we're playing havoc with viral evolution, which is occurring right before our eyes, bringing forward all sorts of new strains of the virus that are escape mutations, trying to escape our vaccines and escape our immune responses. So this virus still has some curveballs to throw us. Well, Laura, let me ask you about that new variant in a minute, but I want to go back to the point you made a minute ago about the aftermath. It's going to be ugly, not maybe not terribly dissimilar from the aftermath of the 2009 financial crisis with a lot of grievances, will be more nationalistic, maybe more bitter as a people, unequal. Uh, that, that, that sort of is what happened after 2009, and something similar may happen this time. You can already see that most of the Fortune 500 companies and the next tier down in multinational companies are making plans that involve being very, very different business communities than they had been before. They will never fly to as many meetings again. They will never spend as much money on travel and hotels again. Uh, they will never believe in just-in-time delivery as a safe way to go. We will now see inventories and stockpiles. Um, the whole chain of production is going to be altered. Every single aspect of you just take how do you make a car and who makes what parts in what countries. All of this is going to begin to involve far more strategic planning related to the economic and political relationships between nations. We're going to see um, dramatic changes in how people think about culture and think about art and the experience of entertainment, music, all of that. I mean, already you're seeing artists the world over, whether they're dancers, performers, singers, writers, whatever they may be. The whole creative process is going through a complete rethink as people try to create in lockdown. And I think some of the lessons learned from it will be positive and people will come out the other side doing things differently than they did before COVID. You, you mentioned the new variant um, and is it going to hit the U.S. as hard as it's hit Europe? And uh, from just only two weeks experience, as you look at what the Biden administration is trying to do about that and, and, and what they had, what they inherited, uh, are they doing what you'd like to see or they should be doing more? Well, first of all, it's not a new variant. It's not two new variants. It's many, many new variants. Right. And uh, the only reason we don't always speak in the multi-plural status is that we do such a poor job of looking for these variants in the United States that we really don't have a comprehensive sense of what's drifting around in patients and in communities around America. It's almost pure chance that we stumble upon, for example, the new variant in Southern California that appears to be uh, more transmissible, similar to the UK variant, um, the new variant in Ohio, uh, the emergence of the Brazilian variant and the South African variant in the United States in several states, and the UK variant as of today identified in 38 U.S. states. You combine all this together and you begin to get a picture of where we're headed. Um, the virus mutates or is able to spread in mutant form 
when there's a lot of viral activity and human interaction going on. So we are not doing enough to control how much human-to-human spread there is. We're not wearing our masks enough. We're not staying away from group settings enough. We're not taking all the obvious precautions that by now absolutely every single American knows the list, knows what they should be doing, uh, but they're not doing it. And the result is that there's a lot of opportunity for the virus to spread around and go from person to person and in the process go through some mutational events. On top of that, unfortunately, we're approaching treatment in this country in a very haphazard fashion because we don't really have any good solid recipe for how to treat a severely ill COVID patient. And we have even less of a recipe uh, if the COVID patient comes to us already plagued with a prior set of diseases, such as acute diabetes or uh, major cardiac problems uh, or cancer. So the result is that there's a kind of throw things at them, try the kitchen sink, you know, this drug, that drug, this combination, sure, they're in this stage of the disease and the medical literature says this drug only works in earlier stage, but what the heck, it's all we got, throw it at them. And the result is that we're kind of creating, um, you know, hundreds thousand Petri dishes walking around that provide terrific environmental pressure on the virus to mutate. It's, they're not being treated well enough to kill off the virus. They're being t- well, treated well enough to put selection pressure on the virus. I, to, Jim, to put this in context, think of it as um, our, what we've been dealing with for the, a couple of decades now with antibiotics. As you know, all our antibiotics are getting less and less and less effective all the time because bacterial populations are undergoing a kind of evolutionary process as we throw inappropriately used antibiotics at them. It selects for the ones that happen to have appropriate genetic factors to allow them to become the new drug-resistant strain. And we're, we're kind of doing the same thing now with COVID. James Carville, so, you want to yeah, jump in? I do. So, uh, you've been covering high-end biology for years and years and years, since the last century. And, of course, you knew that something like there's a real possibility this is going to happen. When did you have your, like, your oh, shit moment? This is the big one. Do, do you, like, remember at, at a point where, you know, you had the, the SARS and you, you've had other, you know, you've had, you wrote about it extensively, won a Pulitzer Prize on Ebola. Uh, but when did, do you, was there a moment where you said, oh my God, this is what we've all feared? Did, yes. Such a moment? It was New Year's Eve 2019. Ugh. I was uh, monitoring reports out of China and I had already been trying to keep track of this since before Christmas. And because I had been in China during the SARS epidemic in 2003 and uh, had tracked Chinese response to the 1997 emergence of H5N1, the very, very, very dangerous, very lethal form of influenza, I and I'd been several times to China, I had a sense that I was 
already witnessing a cover-up. And so as I was seeing reports, particularly once I knew that doctors had put out information regarding the possibility of a strange new infectious form of pneumonia and that they had been suppressed for putting that information out, I knew, uh uh-oh, we're dealing here with something that feels a lot to me like SARS in 2003. So uh, on, this is kind of a local thing, but it's about a policy. In in Mardi Gras of 2020, you know, we had a huge, we we were one of the first places hit, and I remember our governor was actually on the PBS NewsHour, posted by Judy Woodruff, Alice Wright, and he was asked, did did anybody say anything? And he said, no, we had no indication. Nobody in public health, nobody from the CDC uh, ever called the governor, ever called the mayor and said, hey, maybe this is not the best idea you ever had. Does public health in the United States, that whole infrastructure, should it be in for some second guessing and criticism here? Well, certainly that's already going on. Right. But I think you have to step back and understand a little bit about how our public health system is organized. You know, after I wrote The Coming Plague, the the only real criticism I came in for, which surprised me, I was expecting an onslaught of attack about my book because I was basically arguing that American medicine had prematurely closed the book on infectious diseases uh, and declared victory over the microbes. Um, But the one criticism that resonated for me was, well, what are you going to do about it? So I spent a year traveling across the former Soviet Union and uh, the Warsaw Pact nations of Eastern Europe and uh, traveling across uh, India and in the Ebola epidemic in the Democratic, what was then called Zaire, Democratic Republic of Congo, and a number of other locations all over the United States trying to understand really what was the status of public health and could public health conquer the next big one when it arrived? Where, what were the weak spots? What were the strengths? And uh, I, I was stunned to find out really how terrible it was in most of the world, including all of the United States. And largely because we had seen a power struggle in the early 20th century between organized medicine and public health. And organized medicine always has more money, always has more prestige. An MD gets you more public attention than a PhD. Uh, And the notion of the individual who saves your personal life when you have a heart attack versus the individual who saves the life of your whole community by making the water safe to drink. Well, most people put the equation on the side of that one life, theirs, when they have the heart attack. And I saw that it really didn't matter whether you were talking about a communist society, a a capitalist society, uh, an autocracy, or a democracy. Everywhere you went, this same power struggle had unfolded in the 20th century at the dawn of the germ theory era and ended up decidedly on the side of organized medicine and the power structure of doctors and hospitals. And so you have a situation where an individual who is in charge of saving, oh, say here in New York City, you know, eight and a half million lives every day 
by testing and ensuring the safety of our drinking water, that person is probably earning somewhere in the ballpark of seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year, whereas the chief of medicine of a local hospital who treats a handful of patients a week is making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and then. If you go outside of the salary differential and just ask where are the resources, you can see what we're experiencing right now as we try to roll out vaccines across America. You have health departments that still have 35-year-old fax machines, and they have uh, computers operating on Windows 98. They have uh, individuals trying to get around in 20-year-old vehicles to get out into rural areas to see and check on uh, patients and do contact tracing. Uh, you know, we're operating on a shoestring and expecting these people to have surge capacity to go to full all-out war st standing uh, with a, an army that's grossly underpaid, way too small, and using armaments that the enemy conquered years ago. Albert? You know, you mentioned your prescience on New Year's Eve 2019. We, we, we know, I think everyone agrees, China wasn't honest, transparent, and forthright. Two questions. If they had been, how much less severe might this have been globally? And in any case, if the Trump administration had handled this properly and acknowledged it and moved on it and relied on the experts and done things that should have been done, how much better could this country have done than the 450,000 deaths we already have? Yeah. So last year, uh, I wrote the cover story of the New Republic for their April 2020 issue. I had spent the whole month of March and a fair part of February working on it. And it was comparing and contrasting the Xi regime response in China to the Trump regime response in the United States to the virus and and trying to see where was the culpability, who was responsible, and how bad was this going to get. It was obvious to me that these two men, very imperfect individuals, very ego-structured uh, leaders who require sycophants around them and require good news, positive news all the time that neither of them were the right men to have as the two most powerful individuals on planet Earth at the moment that this virus emerged. In the case of Xi Jinping, uh, it's very clear that he knew that it was a serious human-to-human, -human, airborne, transmissible, very lethal microbe that was spread all over Wuhan and had already made it throughout Hebei province and into neighboring provinces. Uh, and that he knew that and told the state council that uh, as early as the uh, second week of January 2020. Uh, yet, publicly and to the World Health Organization and to uh, President Trump when they met at the Davos World Economic Forum. Xi's line was, it's no big deal. We have it under control. It all is because of an animal market and we shut the market down. So don't worry about it. And then on the Trump side, you know, this man clearly did not want to go through his election year trying to tackle a darn virus. It was denial mechanisms writ large. We all remember that press conference where he said there's only 15 cases right. and those 15 will all be gone in no time. Uh, and 
He was praising China as late as uh, early March. Yes, and when his Centers for Disease Control uh, top scientists attempted to say publicly, uh, sir, this is the nature of outbreaks. It always looks like just one, just two, just a handful when they start, but it's growing and we don't know the true numbers and we think it's serious. Then he shut the CDC up. And this is the other thing to go back to a prior question of yours about, you know, what's the soul searching going on in public health right now? You're already seeing a real game change uh, with the Biden administration in terms of the role of the Centers for Disease Control and the CDC, which had been the world's preeminent public health institution, planet Earth, bar none, nobody even close, has been muzzled and stifled and tromped into the ground by the Trump administration. And you see now that almost every day, the director of the CDC is part of the White House press briefings since Biden has come in. And we've seen a tidal wave of publications and scientific analyses coming forward just in the two weeks of the Biden administration. So uh, we have some hope. James got his second vaccine a week or so ago. I'm going to get mine in four days. What should we do? Should we change anything? We're not any, 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 I mean, we still have to socially distance and mask because I think that affects a lot of people out there and there may be a false sense of, 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 of immunity when that, uh, when that occurs. Well, the answer to your question has a lot to do with your value system. Um, if your reason for getting vaccinated and your only concern is your own safety and your own survival, well, you know, maybe after an appropriate amount of time, letting the vaccine fully take after your second shot, uh, you can go and be a jerk and wander around and pretend there's no epidemic. Uh, but if you have a higher value system, whether it's Judeo-Christian or wherever it comes from, and you actually care about other human beings, you think you have a responsibility to the people around you, whether they are family or strangers, then you must take to heart the fact that not one of these vaccines, not one, has been tested to see whether or not they actually stop the spread of virus. Our measure of success, when you hear that, say, the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine are 95% effective, what that is a measure of is the relative possibility that you will get sick if you get infected. It doesn't say you can't carry virus and give it to another person. And I would say as a cautionary tale, so that everybody understands how serious this point is, um, polio. You know, Jonas Salk in the 1950s invented the first amazing vaccine of the second half of the 20th century, the polio vaccine. And those of us that got it way back when got injected in our arm with a vaccine. And what that vaccine did was absolutely 100% block us from getting the paralytic disease, the horrible paralysis of polio. But as it turns out, polioviruses live in your gut and hide out in cells in your intestinal tract. And it turned out that you could be vaccinated with the Salk vaccine and still have viruses hiding in your GI tract that you would pass. Because here's the point. 
Along comes Sabin. And Sabin says polio is an environmental disease. These kids have been vaccinated, but they can still carry virus and they pass it in their poop and it goes out into the environment. So he invents the oral vaccine, which sterilizes virus out of the GI tract and truly stops you from being capable of spreading. So the lesson on this is it is quite possible, and we don't know one way or the other, that people who have been fully vaccinated with any one of these vaccines, all doses, appropriate amount of time, immune system looks strong, and they are protected against getting the disease we call COVID, but they might not be protected against carrying the virus called SARS-CoV-2. And if that's the case, they have to keep wearing masks, they have to keep practicing social distancing, they have to keep taking care not to potentially be carriers. And let's keep in mind, the majority of all transmission right now in the United States of America is from people that have no symptoms. Uh, This is like, this, this is the ultimate story maybe of in mankind. And it's really you have this, this is the way it seems to me, is you have this mutating ravenous virus and it's like high noon against these like brilliant scientists that have like cornered in on it. And it's some kind of struggle that's just, it It, it seems to me that it's just going to go on and on and on. It's for, for the foreseeable future. We're just going to be trying to stay one step ahead of this. Is there a flaw in my thinking? Well, I think you're on to something there because the real situation right now is that we have no strategy for tackling this virus. We have no global strategy. WHO doesn't have one. We have no national strategy. Even the nearly 200-page long uh, COVID plan put out by the Biden administration is not a strategy. It's a list of tactics. Right. And, you know, those who know the difference between strategy and tactics know you don't have a strategy unless you have an agreed upon goal, a target. What are you trying to achieve? So you put eight COVID scientists in the room and ask them, what do you think should be our target for the next, you know, ultimate target? What are we trying to achieve? And you'll get no agreement. Uh, Some would say it must be eradicated, which would be like smallpox. It has to be completely eliminated from planet Earth. Some would say, oh, we just have to buy enough time with vaccines that eventually we get something called herd immunity. And then, you know, we add it to the pantheon of child vaccination schedules alongside measles to minimize it for the rest of whatever period of time. Some would say, oh, it's like HIV. You know, it'll be a permanent threat on the human landscape, a threat that didn't exist before the 1980s and did not afflict humanity. And we'll have to have an enormous movement of resources and wealth from rich countries to poor countries to control it in the years going forward. Um, But we don't have a strategy, so that means that we can't really answer your question. Well, well, first of all, thank you. I'm going to turn it over to the last question. But one thing that always drove me crazy, and you are a very smart person, I'm not. But people say, you know what they need to do? They need to get some smart people in a room and listen to them. And mine is always the same thing. I know a lot of smart people. And you know what? They don't agree on shit. If you if you give me five smart people, I'm going to get six opinions. And I, I think just what you, you say is that we had all of these people in public health that have studied this. And we we still can't seem to coalesce. And, and you're right. It, it, it's, it, look at what's happening at, city in Amazon in, in, in Brazil. Look what's happening 
you know, globally. This is not just a challenge for the United States. This this thing is is everywhere. And it's pretty clear. And I, I hope that smart people can like come together and say, all right, th- this is what we got to do and uh, internationally. But I, I appreciate your, your take on it. But it is kind of depressing that we're this deep into it and still uh, are catching knives, if you will. All right. I think that. Go ahead. Um, I, you know, I, I take your sober point and I think as we go forward, the challenge is going to be to get us out of what President Biden has referred to rescue mode and into resilience reconstruction mode. And that would be an American phenomenon, but we can't really get out into reconstruction as long as the virus is still out there in the rest of the world. We are not on an island and we, you know, we are totally connected in every imaginable way uh, to the rest of the planet and need to be or our economy collapses. So um, we will have to figure out a way that our res- our arms of rescue embrace not just the 50 U.S. states and territories, but the whole planet. Thank you. Laurie, Gary, you've been a terrific guest. We've learned a lot. Some of it's <clears throat> a little, as James said, <clears throat> a little bit depressing, but it's a great warning for what we have to do ahead. And we thank you, and we hope you'll come back sometime. I look forward to it. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Hey, James, today we're welcoming a new sponsor to the show. Welcome IP Vanish. So what is IP Vanish? You are probably asking. It's a virtual private network, a VPN for short. A VPN is a super important tool that helps you safely browse the internet. You can use VPN on your computers, tablets, phones, even things like your Fire Stick when you're streaming media. When you use an VPN, all your data is encrypted. We like that, James, don't you think? We sure do. I'm, I'll tell you, as soon as I can, I'm going to have Ali uh, put me on this thing. But I, I, I like, because if you just go on the normal internet, it, it, and anything that you Google, if you want to Google knife sets, they get it, and all you do is you get 15 pop-up things of people trying to sell you knives. I mean, you, even if you're doing, if you're not watching porn, or you know, <laughs> but if you're just doing like totally legit stuff, they don't. No, me never. Who would think I'd do such a thing? It, but you do that. The other thing is, is that if you travel a lot, like I hope that I'm able to do, you know, when this pandemic closed down, is if if I'm in Prague and I want to watch Meet the Press, I, I can go right on this network if I want to watch the, 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 on this platform, if I want to watch BBC. I mean, I like the idea of the whole thing. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try this. This seems like one hell of a product that, that's really uh, a good deal for, for curious people who like sometimes for their curiosities remain, to remain among themselves. Uh, you know, you're right. And, and IP Vantage is just $349 a month. That's $349 a month or $27.99 a year. You can help protect your online privacy and security. With IP Vanish, you get anonymous IP addresses so you can't be tracked by anyone on the web, which we all worry about a little bit now. You can circumvent any online censorship since IP Vanish has more than 1,500 servers in more than 70 locations. And you get protection even when you're using your public Wi-Fi. Remember, with IP Vanish, all your data is encrypted so no one can snoop on what you're doing. James, you and I are going to be in this week, right? I'm, I'm on this thing. I, as Trump might say, what do you got to lose? Not even 28 right. bucks. Right. $349 <laughs> a month or $27.99 a year. This is the yeah. time to sign up with our discount 
and their current promotional offerings. You can get a VPN for 65% off their usual offerings. You go to IPVanish.com slash War Room to claim your 65% savings. IPVanish is the best of the best, even rated 4.7 on a scale of 5. I wish I did that well in school. On Trustpilot, and that's with more than 6,000 reviews. Show these guys some love. Remember, it's IPVanish.com slash War Room to get the deal and start protecting yourself online. Hey, James, this is our week for having the best. If you want to talk to the best analyst of the National Football League, and I'm relying on my son, Benjamin, who says he'll forget more than I know about the NFL. He says, far and away the best is Greg Cassell. He doesn't worry about the little stuff. It's the big stuff. He knows it. He knows it inside out. He is at uh, that uh, NFL Films for years. He worked with my dear friend, Steve Sable. Uh, Greg, thanks for being with us. You know, Steve was your close colleague, my longtime friend. Friend, he loved narratives. No one was better at crafting them. But there never, it seems to me, has been a narrative better than this. The greatest quarterback of all time versus the greatest young quarterback of all time. 43-year-old six-time Super Bowl winner against 25-year-old defending champ. With Steve not here, no one can better describe this than Greg Cassell. Tell us. Well, you know, before we do that, Al, I got to ask Carville, what the hell's going on with LSU football? <laughs> In terms of, I mean, look at how many players we we got four high impact, six total on both teams, and four really high impact players. I mean, Honey Badger, Clyde, uh, Devin White, and Fournette. That, that LSU football is going to be well represented in this Super Bowl. <laughs> you didn't want to talk about the actual right now. We got a strong recruiting class. We got uh, Brad Johnson's kid is coming back. He he was yeah. really played quarterback well for us. Miles Brennan, before he went down, was like the fourth-ranked pass in the country. And traditionally, our problem has been, we got, you know, until Joe Burrow, the greatest quarterback in college football history, comes along. But I, I, I'm, I'm not – I feel pretty good about – I don't feel good about the last season, but I, I, think, I think we're – you know, we're, we're playing a tough neighborhood, no doubt about okay. that. Well, but, one of my good I, friends I is now your offensive coordinator, Jake Peets. Yeah, I saw that hire. People were kind of excited about it. You think we made a good hire, Al? Yeah, no, I know Jake well. But, uh, but uh, to right, respond this, to this Al now – after the show, let's get to the Super Bowl. Uh, and All I'm right. going to uh, ask the end of the question, Greg. Uh, here, here's the narrative I would throw out there, Al. I would say that because the game is so quarterback-driven, the, the NFL game as a whole, that we almost have the old-school quarterback, the kind of quarterback that now people say will not really – be the future of the league, the quarterback who works solely from the pocket and does not really have the ability to get outside of the pocket and make what we call second reaction plays, improvisational plays, versus the new breed quarterback, the quarterback who can, yes, throw it well from the pocket, but is so good at getting outside the pocket and making special plays. So it's really the the old school quarterback that in, in some ways is being viewed as a dinosaur in the game versus the new breed quarterback that is now considered uh, the way of the world when it comes to the quarterback position. God, we all should be dinosaurs like Tom Brady, shouldn't, shouldn't we, uh, Greg? What, what, if, if you're Brady and Mahomes now and Reed and Aaron's now, what are you thinking is your greatest challenge on Sunday? Uh, you know, what do you have to achieve and what do you most worry about? Well, that gets into a little bit, Al, the tactics of the game. I mean, you're dealing with 
Tom Brady facing a Steve Spagnolo defense. He's the D coordinator for the Chiefs, and he is extremely aggressive. He blitzes an awful lot, and he blitzes against everybody. Uh, and my guess is he probably blitzes because he knows that, hey, if they give up one, so what? He knows his quarterback, Mahomes, is going to put up 35 anyway. So what's the difference if they give up one? But the challenge for Tom Brady and the Bucks' offense is the blitz. How do they handle the blitz? Can they block it? Can they make plays against it? Because if they can't do that, it's going to be a, a tough afternoon. Because there have been games this year in which the Bucks' offensive line has not been very good, and Brady's been under a lot of duress, and we know he's not moving anywhere. So if he's under duress, he's going to get hit, and he's going to get sacked. Well, and Mahomes also has to worry about his offensive line, doesn't he? He sure does, because they lost their left tackle, Eric Fisher, to an Achilles tendon injury, and now they're playing uh, a backup left tackle who's not even really a left tackle in Mike Remmers. Um, and for those who, who may remember, uh, I guess this is a little history, but Mike Remmers was the right tackle for the Carolina Panthers when they lost in the Super Bowl to the Denver Broncos, and Von Miller was the MVP because Mike Remmers had a very, very difficult time trying to block Von Miller. So now Mike Remmers will be matched up against either Shaq Barrett or Jason Pierre-Paul, two very difficult matchups. Well, you know, at this, let me, let me just, before I turn it over to James, let me just ask you about Brett. How does he do it? I mean, this is, he's the seventh wonder of the world. Whether he wins or loses, his, his 10th Super Bowl, he's 43 yep. years old, Greg. Now, to some of us, that seems young, but not to football players. What, what, is there, is there a, a secret uh, mental, uh, uh, psychological, physical for Tom Brady doing what no one else has ever done? Well, I can only speak to what, what I see on film. I certainly, we hear about his regimen with his nutrition and his working out. I'm sure that's a significant part of it. But very few quarterbacks, and I've been, this is, I just finished my 41st season at NFL Film. So wow. I've seen, uh, you know, a few plays here and there. Um, I think that no quarterback has been as impressive with what I call repetitive mechanics. He does everything right on every snap physically. Now, are there plays on occasion where the defense prevents that? Of course. But he does the same thing all the time. And believe it or not, not every quarterback does. In fact, most quarterbacks don't. But Tom Brady is that guy. He does the same thing all the time. And that allows him to make great throws consistently. You know, everybody speaks about him as being clutch. The reality is he does the same thing in the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter. It's just the fourth quarter is closer to the end of the game, so people say he's clutch. But he does the same thing all the time. Well, James. So, Greg, you know, if we're watching the game with you. Early in the game, I gather one of the things you're going to be looking at is to see how the pass protection is going to really be a key as to how this ends. Is that kind of one of the primary things you're going to be? Yeah, I early? mean, I think that's particularly a factor for the Bucks uh, because Brady can't is not going to move. Um, and we've seen Brady at times just throw the ball up. He threw an interception against Green Bay where there was a blitz that was not picked up, and he just threw it up, and it was intercepted by Jari Alexander. He's not going anywhere, so he needs a relatively clean pocket. Um, now, he's still very good and with little movements within the pocket, but he will not escape the pocket. So 
that's one thing I would absolutely look at. Uh, when it comes to Mahomes, he's a different kind of cat. I mean, he can get pressure and he can move around and make special plays. And in fact, he does that a lot, particularly on third down. This particular season, he had more rushes where he left the pocket on third down, converting them into first downs than any quarterback in the league. So with Mahomes, it's different. Yeah, so it's a pretty good assumption that Mahomes and Brady are great and they'll have a great game. But there'll be a story underneath. It'll be a, a big defensive play or it could yep. be that, uh, you know, it was a, a receiver that did exceptionally well. If, if who A couple of players or maybe a unit you think might surprise us on the upside it, with deference to the greatness of Mahomes and Brady. But is it going to be like the Kansas City tight end maybe or, or is it going to be Devin White or – you know, or something like that. Who do you think has a, you know, when the, the game is over, uh, who's going to be the third interview? Well, it's funny you say that, James, because I've been thinking a lot about that because, you know, obviously I'm getting asked about a lot of things this given week. Um, and I think when you look at the Chiefs, we all know about Mahomes, we know about Tyreek Hill, we know about Travis Kelsey. I think a player to watch is McCall Hardman because he's another really explosive athlete. Great speed, great explosion. He's not a volume player. It's not as if they're going to throw it to him 10 times. Uh, but he was the one in that AFC championship game that really got their offense going on that 50-yard run, basically a reverse-type run. And he has that kind of explosive ability. So to me, he's a player separate from Mahomes, Hill, and Kelsey to look at on the Chiefs that could be a big, big factor in this game. So have you... If you make, do you make predictions or that that's against the code of NFL films? <laughs> <laughs> we always well, push I, I know Al wants me to do that, that James. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the closing line. I didn't know we were uh, quite ready for that. No, we're, we're not closing that. Well, well, I'll, I'll withdraw the question. Uh, counselors, your, your, your turn. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm prepared because I knew Al was going to ask me. Uh, so I'm prepared to, to make a prediction. But I'm bad. Believe it or not, I'm bad at that because. In my mind, there's always five variables on either side that could play out. But but for Al's sake, I will I will be ready with a prediction when the time comes. You're not All as right. bad as Steve on that. But anyway, James, you have another question before I go, and then you go again. Well, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm going to come back to it. it just said I watched the AFC Championship game, and I watched Kansas City. It, it just Mahomes, it's, I've never seen, I mean, there's been a lot of great little Lamar Jackson, I mean, Russell Wilson, people like that. But and as I understand, the Saints really wanted him and we drafted and they were just. They did. They were, they were just nauseated when Kansas City picked him. Did, did other people know that this guy had this kind of talent? Uh, was he this kind of sleeper in the draft? Well, I can tell you, um, I spoke the, the year that he came out because I go to the scouting combine every year and I know a lot of coaches and have great conversations because um, the scouting combine is like spring ba break for coaches because there's no game Sunday. So everybody's relaxed and you have great conversations. And here's what I heard a lot of. And I thought this too, watching his college tape, there was a concern. Everybody knew he was very, very talented. That was obvious. But the concern was he was such a loose and undisciplined player at Texas Tech. He ran around a lot. He didn't work within the structure of the offense. There was a concern among a lot of offensive coaches in the NFL that 
you spend, you know, 16, 18 hours a day putting together your offense for the game on Sunday and that he would not execute the game plan because he would play outside of the structure of it, that he would freelance far too much. And he does that at times, but Andy Reid has obviously done a really, really good job of, of getting him within the structure of his offense. But there was a definite concern, James. He was not viewed, if he was, he would have been the first pick in the draft. He was not viewed as an automatic great player. But you're right about the Saints. I know for a fact they picked number 11, and they ended up taking Marshawn Lattimore, as you probably remember. But the Chiefs jumped ahead of them with a trade to number 10, and they took Patrick Mahomes. And I think they traded up for that 11 pick. And, you know, I mean, Lattimore was, look, he's not a run. You know, he's a good pick, but Mahomes is what they really really want. There was a concern about Mahomes. He was not viewed as an automatic, as as a can't miss. I mean, people knew his talent. Um, which was obvious the way you could throw a football, but there were definite concerns about how he would perform within the structure of an NFL offense. Greg, you know, when you started in NFL films 41 years ago, the line was, you know, you can't be a great black quarterback. I mean, I'm sorry, that's not a position. Great wide receiver, defensive back, running back, you know, some linemen. Uh, but there really were no great black quarterbacks back in 1979. Today, if you look at the young players, other than jo- young quarterbacks, other than Josh Allen, you know, you worry whether you can be a great white quarterback. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of a very quick story. Um, so my first couple of years here at Films, obviously, I was learning. It was a different company then. The world was different. Um, and, and James will appreciate this part of it. But my th- the first piece that I did outside of NFL films where they sent me on the road. I actually did a piece with Archie Manning and I was in New Orleans. But the second interview I did was with Doug Williams, Al. And we became friends based on that. This goes back to maybe 1980. And obviously I mentioned that for obvious reasons based on your question. Um, And he was a first round pick of the Tampa Bay Bucks. And as you guys both know, Tampa, Florida, you know, is, is in the South. And, uh, uh, you know, this was 19, let's see, was it 1978 or 79? I remember watching, believe it or not, Doug Williams in the senior ball throwing touchdowns to Ozzie Newsom. So Doug either came out in 78 or 79. Um, but he was the second interview I did for NFL Films back when I started. And, you know, obviously he faced a ton of, uh, if we're using a kind word, a ton of criticism. Oh, man, did he? Did the yeah, yeah. Ozzie Newsom played 14 years at Alabama, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, I remember watching that senior right. ball. Doug Williams, sort of, I believe that guy ever going to graduate? Young quarterbacks are, are, are black today, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, look, I don't know I the mean, reason for that. I mean, the, was. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there's a sense now – that the game is, as I said, you asked me about a narrative to start, and and that's what I kind of spoke about, the fact that now you need to have movement ability. You know, back in those days, I remember, and Al, you may remember this, James, you may remember this. Do you remember Steve Bartkowski, the quarterback? Sure. Um, He came out of of Cal. He was actually Lee Steinberg's first client, if I'm not mistaken. And he came out of Cal, and he was 6'4", 225, drop back quarterback, big arm. That was the prototype. And that was the prototype for a long time. Right. Look, I remember when Carson Palmer came out of USC in 2003. That was, the, 
that was the prototype. Right. You know, now the prototype's a little bit different. Boy, it's changed. Greg, how has the National Football League, more than any other sports organization I can think of or league, been successful with this virus? They've had very few games postponed. They're making it all the way yeah. to the Super Bowl. That's in contrast to almost every other major sport. How have they done it? Well, I hope people understand that I'm not being biased. I mean, obviously, I worked for the NFL but I thought the league did an unbelievable job with the testing, with everything they've done. Look, I don't work for a team, so I, I'm not in the building of teams, but I work at NFL Films, and I can tell you for a fact, we're tested every week. We wear tracers. We come in the building. We have our temperature taken every day. I mean, even here in NFL Films, and all you can do is basically go to your office, keep the door shut, and just leave your office to go to the bathroom. So I'm sure the teams are even stricter in their protocols. And that's how they made it. When you get right down to it, there were only two main issues. Uh, it was the, the Titans early in the year and then the Ravens. Now, there was only one real game where you could say competitive balance was a real problem. And that was that Denver Broncos game where they didn't have a starting quarterback. Yeah, they other than that, other than that, for the most part, it was I hate to use the word normal. That's not the right word. But other than that, the season progressed. Um, because don't forget, it is a sport where players in a, in a quote-unquote normal season do get injured. So it was it, uh, the league did an unbelievable job in, in getting to this point. One quick one, then, before James uh, wraps it up, before we get to your, your prediction, we got to be parochial. So tell us, Greg, who will be the quarterback next season for the New Orleans Saints and for the Washington football team? <laughs> oh, boy, I guess Drew has not made a, an announcement yet, has he? He has not. They said expected within a week. The, expect that he'll retire or just expect uh, an announcement? A decision. I think most yeah. you know, m most people think he will retire. Oh, uh, boy. Um, I, I got to tell you, I, I personally believe, and this is pure speculation, so – so I don't want to be held to this because, you know, that's what happens now. People might listen to this and then on social media, they'll they'll tell me, well, that's what you said. I have no inside information. But if Drew retires, it would not surprise me if Taysom Hill's the quarterback for the Saints next year. It really wouldn't. I thought when he played, he showed some promise. And we know how good Sean Payton is in structuring offense. So that would not surprise me at all. The Washington football team is a little different animal. They're going to need to get a quarterback. And uh, that, that Al, I, I, I hate to say it, but I don't have an answer for that. They're going to have to go out and find one. Now, uh, I don't know offhand where they draft, so I can't say whether like they'll 16, be in the running for one. Um, but they will need to find a quarterback. James. Well, uh, you know uh, – well, I'm sorry. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm so excited about the the game Sunday. But if what is like football is an evolving professional football, but all of football is an evolving sport. And yeah. you know, you're right. We had the the sit in the, the pocket quarterback. We had different things. As, as the game goes forward, where do you think it's going to evolve from where it is today? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think it's always cyclical. Uh, I think that a lot of things that people think go away do come back. Um, you know, I think right now you've got quarterbacks that, as I said, make a lot of plays by getting outside the structure of the offense. 
I think defenses will respond to that. It's difficult to respond to for coaches because obviously when you structure your defense, uh, you're structuring it for the structure of the offense. But uh, I, I had a defensive coordinator who'd been in the league for years and years tell me this past summer that when you play a lot of these quarterbacks that can move is there's you really have two defenses. You have a defense for the first two seconds of the play and then the defense for after two seconds of the play. But I think defensive coaches will start to think along those lines. Um, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm not a coach, but I think that you'll start to see more of that. So it'll be cyclical in that regard. Um, So I think that's one thing that you'll have to see because you're going to get more and more quarterbacks that can move around and make plays off schedule, off script. Okay. Albert, well, all right. This is this is the time, Greg. Um, There's I, no drum roll. I interviewed out. Steve Sable ten times before Super Bowls, and every time I asked him to make a prediction. Uh, every every one of those ten times, and he got two right. Uh, so now we'll test you. Uh, we know <laughs> it is, and you're the best of the business. What's the scoreboard going to look like at 10 p.m. on Sunday night? Uh, boy, I'm, I'm waiting for the drum roll, but um, we'll, we'll have Jeremiah put one in. Okay, we got okay, we got sound okay. people. We can handle this. We got t- you <laughs> know we got sound people. We like NFL films, man. All right, just hit the pregnant pause, and we'll have the drum roll. <laughs> well, here's what I'm thinking, guys. I, when all said and done, I, I think the Chiefs are going to win this game. I think that their offense is really difficult to defend. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly what Todd Bowles, the D coordinator for the Bucks, will do in this game. He's been very blitz heavy, but also all five of their sacks against Aaron Rodgers in the AFC Championship game, none of them came against blitz. So I, I'm not sure how he's going to approach this. But I just think that the Chiefs are really difficult to defend with the way they can stretch the field horizontal, uh, stretch the field vertically, expand it horizontally. Mahomes' ability to make those special plays. So what I'm going to do, Al, is I'm going to pick the the Chiefs to win this game, 34 to 24. Wow, <clears throat> I, you know, you, you know, Steve, uh, looking down at us somewhere, you know, eat your heart out because I think Greg Cosell is going to get it right this year. What do you think, James? <laughs> uh, well, I, look, I, you know, a genius is anybody that agrees with me. And I, I just, when I was watching that AFC Championship game, I, I said, I don't think anybody's going to beat this team. I, I really don't. And and I saw I saw them beat us, you know, and and the, the you know they beat the Packers. I mean that. They beat two real good football teams in here, but I I, I agree with Greg. I, I think this Kansas City team is just unbelievable. I mean, they just got so many ways that they can beat you. And you know, Mahomes has just got you know so much younger than Brady, and I think he just got so much more in his toolbox right now. So, but we'll see. You know, that's one thing is you, <laughs> you got to tee the pigskin up, ball of crochets. Or, that's why know. they play him. Well, that's why it's, they play him. You know, it starts yeah. with a whistle, Greg, and it ends with a uh, with a gun, <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll see. I mean, these. I'm really looking forward to this one for yeah. so many reasons. Yeah, but, me too. You know, sometimes the Super Bowl, normally I'm there for obvious reasons. I am not in Tampa this year. Um, so I'm at NFL Films and I'll be home watching the game. But uh uh, normally I'm theirs, and and this one would be a real exciting one to be at in, in right. a in a quote unquote normal world. But unfortunately, we're not in that kind of world right now. Greg, so I, I just I, I love the Glazers and their very New Orleans oriented family. So this is really uh, you know there's a lot of I think even 
living what we're living through, there's tremendous expectation and anticipation yeah. in this game. Well, can I tell you a very quick story? I'll just take a, a minute. Yes. When Andy Reid got hired in Philadelphia, um, my wife and I went out with Andy Reid and his wife to dinner in Philadelphia. So I've known Andy for years. So, of course, Andy, you know, I don't think anybody would call him svelte, and I don't think he would be bothered by the fact that no one would call him svelte. So we go out to dinner at one of the best steak places in Philadelphia, and, of course, we all get steak, and, you know, it, it, it's soup to nuts kind of meal. So he orders a baked potato, and and so the waiter says, you know, how do you want that? And Andy, without skipping a beat, and he happens to be a very funny man, by the way, and he, without skipping a beat, he just says, loaded. <laughs> And, you know, that that to me is is Andy Reid in a nutshell. He's and he's a terrific guy. He's a terrific human being. And one and one heck of a coach. Yep. Yeah. We have had the best, James. Greg Cosell. There's no one like him. Uh, NFL films. uh, He is every bit as good as my son said he was. And I knew he was. Greg, thank you so much. We'll all be watching Sunday night. We'll see. Guys, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for uh, having me. See you again. See you again next year. Thanks, Greg. Hopefully All right. Thanks. thanks. Good luck. Hey, when you don't have free time, you can't read or work or engage in personal development, let alone learning more about the things that interest you. You really are jammed. Let me tell you about the ultimate life hack for learning new things and getting ahead. It's an incredible app that solves the problem, and we highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist, James. You're on board, right? I'm totally on board. And if you, if you chop and think of how to pronounce it, think of the Secretary of State. <laughs> when he needs to have some power-packed knowledge real quick. <laughs> yeah, and, and James, with all the problems that Tony, who is a terrific appointment, by the way, is going to have around the world, you know, maybe he'll need Blinkist. Right. <laughs> so that's how we can think of Blinkist. Again, what what I, I really like about it is is that you can learn a lot really fast. And so, if you see something, you know, you, oh, I'm interested in that. You can do this, and and they do a, a really good job of just condensing it down to essentially. I mean, are you going to write a PhD dissertation off of this? No, but that's not likely what you want. What you, you want in life is to learn as much about as many different things as you can to, to have a real kind of sense of curiosity. And, and this is a, this, this app deal, this is for, for curious people who are in a hurry to learn as much as they can, as fast as they can, which I think describes uh, most of the people that listen to this show. So th- this is one hell of a product uh, uh, that I promise you. No, you're right. Blinkist as opposed to Tony Blinken is made for busy <laughs> and successful people like you. We want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with this audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book anywhere, anytime. 12 million people are enjoying Blinkist's massive and growing library right now. And everything from self-help to business, health, and history, along with the latest titles from bestsellers and the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time. Yes, that's right. When you think of Tony Blinken, think of Blinkless. And maybe Tony Blinken can read Blinkless when he needs to have some power-packed knowledge real quick. <laughs> yeah, and, and James, with all the problems that Tony, who is a terrific appointment, by the way, is going to have around the world, you know, maybe he'll need Blinkist. Uh, they have great books on there, two of the so. recent favorites, okay. The Virgin Way, Every Hang I Know About Leadership by Richard Branson and Untrumping America by Dan Pfeiffer. So, James, let's do it. All right. I like Richard Branson. He was now he's going back to making a gazillion dollars. He was supposedly going back. You know, I can't follow the ups and downs of these guys. But 
That that Virgin is a that's a good airline. You said so much, but you know you try Blinkist using our free voucher and share your personal experience with your listeners. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience, you all out there. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room. That's all one word to try it free for seven days. Save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash War Room to start your free day, seven-day trial, or look for the link in our show notes. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash War Room, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. All right, James, the segment we love, questions from those really, really smart listeners out there. A number today uh, are uh, about about politics. And uh, let me tell you, listeners out there, I've been doing this for a long time because I'm really old. And the two smartest people, whatever we call them, consultants, operative strategists, I have ever known are James Carville and Stu Spencer. They may not know what kind of buy you want to make in Des Moines or who's the county chair, uh, down in Harris County, but they know politics, and there's no one better to ask right now than James Carville. So, James, let's wow, start I'm with humbled. Christian Mississippi, <laughs> right, who so. says, uh, this is just a matter of personal curiosity from someone who's never been involved in politics. How do you approach concretely as a consultant? You're assigned a county you've never been to in Idaho or someplace and told to cut the Republican margins. What are some of the first things you do? What are the data points you collect? How do you collect them, and how do you formulate a strategy? Right, and a lot of that depends on your resources. But what you generally try to do in politics is take all of the people that you know are going to vote against you no matter what, all right? Add that to all of the people that you know are going to vote for you no matter what. And then take those two numbers, add them together, and then subtract that from 100. So let, let's say if you well, Idaho's probably, but maybe the parts of Idaho, boys, that are pretty democratic. So... You say based on voting behavior, I think that 31% of these are going to vote against us no matter what. They're, high, they're chronic voters. They turn out in higher rates. They always vote Republicans. There's 24% in here that are chronic voters. They're Democratic. They all vote Democratic. All right. So you take those two numbers. You probably say, well, 31 and 24. All right. Then you say, all right, now who are the rest of these voters? What are the traits? You know, do they tend to be older? Do they tend, do they tend to, to be less white? Do they go to church? Do they own guns? Do they have anything? And then once you figure that out, you say to yourself, are equally important, who are people that don't normally vote that if we got them out, they would vote for our side? So that's basically when you start doing a campaign. It's the stuff you do in the third grade. It's, you know, this plus stat. Equal that minus this is your target. And I think that that found that little back of the envelope formula to be the rudimentary beginning of every campaign that you get into. And people always want to talk to the 24% that are already for you because you get good emotional feedback, you get good, you know, fun, you get a standing ovation, but it doesn't do you much good. Christian, I hope you've written all that down because you're not going to get any better advice. James, I'm, I'm going to take two. So let me, right, let me, so this is one of my great stories in politics. I read the Clinton 
reunion in the 20th reunion, I guess it was at a start in, in Little Rock. And Kaya Anders, who worked with me, said that President Clinton was going to the line. And she said, uh, Miss President, this is my daughter. Uh, she wants to be president one day. What advice do you have for? And he kind of put his head back in a way, he kind of shake his finger. And he said, two things, study hard and meet as many people as you can that are not like you. I, I think that's the best advice for a young person that wants to get into politics is study hard and, and try to associate and learn about as many different people as you can that are not from the same cut of cloth that you are. I think, I think that's James, excellent. that's a great advice for politics. It's a great advice for other things, too. It's one of my constant refrains up at the University of Pennsylvania. Spend time with people who are different than you. You know, football players spend time with poets. It doesn't happen enough, but that is great advice. The next, you know, question, I'm going to combine two we have here because Hunter in Clovis, California, ask if the Democrats have any prospects for getting rid of the filibuster. And Nick, from down in Melbourne, Australia, wants to know what strategies can Democrats adopt to pass the John Lewis voting rights, given the likely filibuster by Republicans and the awful stuff that voted, but already Republicans are trying to do in states to curb voting. Our friend Fred Wertheimer has, I think, an interesting idea here. I'm not sure it'll fly because you're not going to get that kind of campaign reform stuff through the Senate with Mitch McConnell there. The only thing that Mitch McConnell cares more about than judges is his power and his money, and this would threaten that. He will do whatever it takes to stop it. So you got to break the filibuster. And, I'm, and what Fred and others are talking about is there ought to be some kind of modification so that on a small number of bills, and this would be the perfect vehicle. This is about citizens' rights. This is about their right to vote. This is about getting rid of some of the sleaze uh, in in the business. I don't know if they can do it, but that's the way to do it. I, I agree. Uh, I defer to, to Fred and you on this because you've been much more schooled in a way. He'll just don't don't say you're appealing to filibuster. You're, you're just modifying it on, on this one kind of national emergency thing. And, you know, eventually, depending on what happens, they'll probably chip away at it. But, yeah, I, I, I think that's... A, if it comes about, it'll come about up to suspect in some way like that. Right. But uh, James, I Dave don't... in Seattle, uh, this is this is going to you again. Uh, you know, the eminence Greece, as they say. Uh, he says, I'm wondering, where do I contribute dollars now? The 2020 election is over. I'm still getting multiple frantic calls. Look what Mitch did now. You know, those emails that go out. And text, I want to live my life, but I want to keep donating uh, because I really care about what's happening in the country. Do I donate to the DNC, the Senate committee, the House committee? I can't do them all. So how right. do I decide? What do you recommend? I, I would go directly to the Senate campaigns. And, 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 you know, I would, of course, pay particular attention, as I think you would agree, to uh, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. You got, you got a tough hole in Georgia. I mean, really tough hole in Georgia. Uh, you got a pretty tough hole in Arizona. So pick out the, the Senate seats that you think that the Democrats have a good chance. And I would, in, unless you're going to write, you know, huge $100,000 checks or you're some, in some danger of going busting a limit, which I'm assuming you're not, I would always advise people to, to have more leeway. It, there's certain amounts of money that's restricted and they can't get the best rate or anything Pound for pound, dollar for dollar, I recommend a direct contribution to the campaign. Okay, good advice. Uh, 
Here's one from Gordy in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. That's one of my very favorite towns. I love oh, Gettysburg. Yeah. Who asked, why is infrastructure so hard? Joe Biden can win over Trump voters if he put a few thousand of them at work fixing bridges and roads and building airports and schools, all while making a good wage. And it would be a tremendous boost to the economy. And I'll tell you why it is so hard. Uh, and it's 90 percent this time the Republicans fault. They insist on two things. One, some of them say, well, you got to pay for it. This is not something. This is not an entitlement program. This is an investment. You, you know, it's going to pay for itself three, four, five times over again. When you have decaying bridges and decaying roads, it hurts the economy. I mean, look at our airports compared to China. And then they go and they want to impose various restrictions that would really cripple labor unions in some of these places. What you ought to do is come up with a simple, clean infrastructure built big sorts of things, frankly, that Trump talked about, and do it because the country needs it. So, so there's a, a great David Leonhardt and a, another uh, journalist who has a difficult name to pronounce. I'm, I can't remember it, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Right. I mean, no disrespect. All right? And it's about how stunningly better the economy is over the last 75, 80 years or more under Democrats and Republicans. It, 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 the, the chances that this is just uh, random are, are, are almost nil. Now, one of the things that is that, and they say, well, we have, Republicans, they like deficit spending when they're in office, but they don't like deficit spending when a Democrat's in office. And they, they discover their principles. No, the truth of the matter is Keynesian multipliers work. Right? They just do. They're, they're, I'm not an economist. I, 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 I can't do the math on a Keynesian multiplier. But time and time again, we know it works. The reason that it's so hard is they know if Joe Biden gets a big infrastructure plan in, of which you basically, the interest rates are negative, so you're, you're not even paying the interest, I'm paying it back. It will put people at work. It'll make the country a better place. Democrats will win re-election. That's why they're against it. They're not against it on principle. They're against it because they actually know that it works. And they have always used it when they get in office because, you know, it, it, it works limitless when you have a limit on it because after strategies, if you give all the money to the rich people, someone else it'll trickle down to middle class people. But it works a little bit. But what they know is if they institute real sound, big D democratic economic policy, talking about infrastructure, talking about, you know, major investments in, 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 in public needs, that it's going to work and they're going to lose an election. That's the reason that they're yeah. against it. This principle don't have shit to do with it. They know this works. Everyone knows it works. Probably the thing that we should do and won't do is increase the gas tax. Uh, and there's a way to rebate that to those who get hurt by it, by farmers. But, but that's not going to happen. But, but you're right. Here's one from Joseph in Houston, Texas. And I don't know if he's running, but he asked you, James, is Beto O'Rourke have any chance to beat Greg Abbott? I support him for senator. Didn't think he was ready for president. Does he have what it takes for governor? And do you think he'll run? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I was reading this thing. It just broke my heart about this cardiologist in Laredo. The Texas, South Texas border, which was a very di difficult time for Democrats in 2020, is, is under just a God-awful pandemic. And Abbott won't do anything because he's so paralyzed by the crazy right-wingers in Texas. I, I know that Texas was disappointing to us in 2020. You know, we had Richard Murray on. We had high hopes of Texas. They turned to be scorched. Abbott is just, he's caught. There's no decisive leadership. He's 
caught between two things. The 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 the, the virus is horrible ass, particularly horrible in in, in the valley. And, uh, you know, Beto did a remarkable thing in 2018. He seemed to have gotten ahead of himself in 2020. It, it, the thing that he's going to have to do is convince people, you know, which you know he has a lot of energy, he has a lot of communication skills or something different about him. Does he have the kind of discipline to be the governor of Texas? If he can mount that hurdle, he might have a good chance. I mean, why not? Got to try something. Yeah. Uh, he was a disappointment as a presidential candidate, that's for sure. Maybe he can, uh, you know, rekindle so that. Kamala Harris uh, was a disappointment, too, but she, look where she went. Yeah. Rebecca from Ann Arbor. It's another one of my favorite cities. I love it when people write from our favorite cities. I love Ann Arbor, Michigan. Was that Delhi to Zingerman's or something? Yeah. Jesus, man, that place is unbelievable. Uh, Rebecca asked, can the Senate subpoena Cunan to testify at the impeachment trial? Rebecca, they can, you know, Chuck Schumer and the majority can subpoena anyone they want to. I think they will probably keep it at a minimum because they don't want a long trial. And they're going to count on, as James said earlier, the very effective House presentation and some videos. Mike, I don't know if there'll be any witnesses, but if so, there'll be very few. Yeah, I have no reason. I have every reason to, to agree with you. I think it's a, you know, it, it, it's a real problem because they got a question of duration and evidence and, you know, some hard choices they're going to have to make here. Uh, we'll see, but I think there's going to be a lot of video evidence that's going to come up. It's going to be yeah. highly interesting, highly interesting. James, let's, we'll wrap up with something uh, that's a first cousin of that. This is from Andrew in San Diego, California, who says, Ben, Benghazi to January 6th parallels abound. This is your false equivalency. Namely, armed insurgents conducting deadly attacks on U.S. government facilities. That is, um, I think Andrew would agree with me, that is total bullshit. But if you watch Fox News and other, that's the narrative that they are pushing. And uh, I, how well are the Democrats doing in delineating this ain't Benghazi, which was a nothing to begin with? Yeah, this was a, a a mob attacking our own capital as opposed to a mob uh, attacking a satellite embassy or whatever it was. I mean, for God's sakes. But but I I I think that that's why I'm still going on the over on the fifty eight and a half. I'm counting on you know something really powerful here. And I, I think the equivalency here is, I agree totally with you. It's, it's not even remotely. But we talk about places that I love. It's San Diego. And, oh, my God, that, that's, a, yeah. that, that's a great, has a lot there. All of San Diego County is a great place. Oh, it's so, beautiful down it. there. Yeah. Don't, and, you know, I didn't, we didn't mention Melbourne, uh, which is. You know, yeah, I've never Boston. been. I went to Sydney, and I want to go to Melbourne. The, the, the Australians will tell you that, that Melbourne is a much more Australian city than than. Than Sydney is, so I yeah. definitely want to go. Okay, keep those keep those cards and letters coming because they really are good. And the, the hardest thing to do is to figure out which seven or eight we can use because there are so many good uh, questions that come in, and some of them we'll get to next week. So we appreciate it, and please tell us where you're from. Hey, James, my outrage is this: the damage done by the Trump sycophants who spread the lie of a possible stolen election is deeply dangerous and I fear durable. Pretending an election decided by 7 million popular votes and 306 electoral votes 
that that's fraudulent is an invitation for doing the same, particularly in genuinely close elections like we had in 2016, 2012, 2004, 2000, 1992, 1976, 1968, 1960. It's awful what they have done. And we know the chief perpetrators were Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and all those Republican members of Congress, including Kevin McCarthy, who hours after the Capitol carnage voted not to accept the legitimate Biden victory. But that's not my outrage. My outrage is those who were enablers, who are not, who, who are not targeted as much for what they did, like Mitch McConnell. Read the New York Times piece last weekend on those dark 77 days. He played games. I've seen references to the two Missouri Republicans suggesting Roy Blunt is a good, responsible senator versus Hawley. Pretty low bar. For weeks, four weeks after the election, the outcome of which was crystal clear within days, Roy Blunt was saying the outcome is still uncertain and it was too early to call Biden the president-elect. Four years earlier, that's what he called Trump, who won a much closer election the day afterwards. These guys put petty, partisan, dishonest claims that had the country. McConnell's and the Blunt's should be held accountable, too. And, James, I just note one thing that came out today. Lynn Wood, the guy who Ken Starr praised, the Georgia attorney who made all the charges down there about fraudulent voting, appears he's being investigated because he may have voted illegally in Georgia. Well, I will stay with the uh, New York Times under the Bobby Kennedy assertion that the, those whom much is given, much is expected. And I understand it's a great newspaper and they have this. I think the editorial policy and a lot of the op-ed stuff is like full of shit. And the, the height of full of shitness was this past week when they ran an editorial saying Biden needs to get these things done legislatively and not via executive order. Oh, really? It, of course, this is just going to happen. What I, you know, I hesitate to point out that on January the 1st, 1863, a very famous executive order took place. It's called the Emancipation Proclamation. But those people have their heads stuck so far up their butts, they can't see what they're doing. It's not to say that it's not that Maggie Haberman or J. Moore or Marine or any of these people or the people that cover, you know, the, the pandemic for them are not doing brilliant work. But, but they got to do something about the people who run that opinion section, that newspaper, because they're just utterly goofy. James, having worked in this business for a long time and having written for both, don't worry about it. Pay attention to the news pages. And, you know, oh, if you have okay. free time, read the editorials or read the columns. I, 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 I'll get off pages. of this. It's the, it's the news pages that really count. So focus it, on that. And when they foul but, up, as they sometimes do on that, that would upset you a lot more than a silly editorial or a dumb column. But, because but wouldn't I, it be I, I nice think, if, if people, educated people there, could write something meaningful and intelligent that would, would, would contribute to something as opposed to that? That's all I'm saying. It's, you're right. It's not, I'm not, you know, going off in, in a tangent. But it's, it's really this guy, Mr. Applebaum, who, who like, started with making in front of LSU saying it's not a real school and, you know, why are they giving a holiday after that? And, you know, people like that and that and the arrogance that seeps through there just irritates the hell out of people. But this is my last time. I'm leaving them alone. They can go write all the goofy crap they want about. No, but you you're know, right. Maggie Haberman, John Martin, Peter they, Baker. They're great reporters. Uh, they, they, they deserve, they deserve a better there. opinion page than they get. They are, right, right. I don't pay okay. much attention to it. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions 
for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. We love the questions. Remember to include where you're from. Also remember to check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. It's what makes this podcast happen. To keep up with us every week, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. Next week, the impeachment trial will be underway. 